So this morning, like I said, I want to pick up a little bit of what we've been exploring last week. And for the sake of those who weren't here last week, we were looking at Moses' final words to the Israelites, his, his last command, I guess, or his, his last advice, just as he was about to die. And, and just as they, the Israelites, were about to leave the wilderness and, and enter into the promised land. And like I said, there's often a sense of clarity and urgency in people's last words. There's also a sense in which people's final words can almost mark uh, significant beginnings for those people who are left behind. For instance, both Isaac and Jacob, their last words, their final words to their children, kind of become trailheads for them to steer their life through. So given that we're in a new year, it's good to consider the kind of words, um, the kinds of words which we're bringing with us into 2024. And you remember that you know, from last week, Moses laid down this challenge to the Israelites, calling heaven and earth as witnesses to the moment and presenting them with these two pathways, each, leaving, uh, each leading to very starkly different futures. In the first pathway, Moses challenges the Israelites to hold fast to God's ways and um, implores them to be a people who, who listen to God's voice, who love him, and yeah, love him with all of their being. And so, in short, Moses says, choose life. This is what it means to choose life. And the second pathway, which is really anything else, um, anything else except that, anything else except holding fast to God, Moses just sums it up as the way of death. Choose life or choose death. These are your choices. This is what Moses kind of leaves with the Israelites. So that phrase, choose life, has been rattling around in my head, at least this summer. And, and like I shared last week, I sort of wonder if it might be an important phrase for us too, as a church, as, as all of us who make up Urban Vineyard, whether we might ponder that phrase a little bit in the weeks and months to come. What does it mean to choose life? And again, like I discussed last week, at the heart of this decision to choose life, this orientation towards life, is the practice of confession and repentance. So both kind of sometimes quite heavy words with a lot of religious baggage, but, but ultimately pathways to life, uh, pathways to a life of openness, living openly before ourselves, living open, openly before others, and living openly before God. Sounds good. So in the, in the truest sense, to choose life means to live in a constant state of, of returning to God, constantly returning to God. Um, constantly coming home to him again and again, um, minute by minute even, is to choose life. And the real beauty of repentance like that, it's a little bit like the, the, the story of the prodigal son, um, the parable of the prodigal son. God's always longing for us to come home. His eyes are always searching the horizon for us, always yearning for us to return to him, waiting for our silhouette to appear on the horizon. That's what God's like. Um, and when he sees us, he runs to us. That's what God's like. He's always waiting for us to turn back to him. Not an angry God, but a, a father saying, welcome home. And like I say, this can be a daily thing, an hourly thing, being welcomed back into the father's embrace. And the extent to which we can believe this and really deeply in our bones believe that this is what God is like, is the extent to which we can live this life of constant repentance. If, however, we think that the father's um, lavish welcome home for the prodigal son was sort of only a one-time event, 
he was really glad to see him back um, and never do that again. Um, that was kind of the end of the story. Maybe we think of it a little bit like that. But what if the son left again? What would the father's response be the second time? Is there enough grace in the father's heart for his son to return again and to leave and return again and to leave and return again? Twice? Three times? Maybe after the fourth time we think, well, there's no way God's grace could be that big. No way his embrace could be that big to continue to receive this prodigal back who keeps straying. Or maybe to welcome this prodigal with sort of a roll of the eyes. Uh, here we go again. Um, he's come home. If you believe um, that God gets worn out with our failures and that his grace is this diminishing resource that gets less and less and less, then eventually you just, you will, you'll just stop returning to him. You'll, in your mind, you'll think it's not a safe place to go. You'll stop returning to him and either embrace some kind of shrunken version of Christianity, some shrunken life of self-righteousness where you can control the bits that you have control over and everything else um, you will just bury. Or you'll just maybe give up on trying to hold fast to God altogether. Maybe just rationalize sin as just being realistic. This is just how the world works. There's no other way. This is how you have to work through life, sorry. But if we believe at the deepest level of our being that God's love for us is not conditioned on what we can achieve or on how perfectly or how near perfectly we can live, if that doesn't condition God's love for us, if we can know that he's just our father and we are just his beloved child, and if we can always believe that his door is open and always believe that his embrace is always full and fulsome for us, then we will live lives of continual homecoming. This will be who we become, people who continually return home. And we'll stray less and less. We want to leave the Father's house less and less when we find that this is a place of comfort and warmth and embrace. We will become people who love living in the Father's house. But don't take my word for it. You have to taste and see. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. So this morning I want to look at another aspect of this process of returning home to God or choosing life. Um, and in particular I want to look at baptism, which might seem like an oddly specific thing to be talking about. Um, you know, an oddly specific thing to insert into this conversation. But hopefully I can make the link clear and show that they're actually part of the same story, the same conversation. So... So firstly, a little background, I guess, is helpful. Um, this practice of, of, of ritual washing, of purification, of pouring water on people's heads, um, where does it come from? Well, you can see it in, in all major world religions, this, this practice of ritualistic washing. Washing with water is the sign of separating clean from unclean, and it exists in almost every culture and every religion. Pure from impure, tapu from noah, sacred from ordinary. This is some found uh, little washing station on the way to a bushwalk that we were on yesterday with the kids. There's these places where people wash uh, and, and where they you know, use water as a way to mark moving in or out of, of certain places. In Jewish tradition, um, the specific practice of, of this ritual washing it traces its way back to these instructions that um, Moses was given and um, found in the book of Exodus. 
in the book of Exodus, it says, God tells Moses to make this bronze basin with, its, with a bronze stand for washing and to place it in the tent of meeting and uh, in between the tent of meeting and the altar and to put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with, with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. It's important. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So the priests in Israel were required to wash themselves and to wash their hands and feet before, um, before bringing their offerings to the altar. Um, and Moses also, you know, in other parts of Exodus, is commanded to, to sprinkle water on the priests. And so, so this... Um, as part of Jewish religious practice, um, using water to to set apart people for for holy um, vocations. However, by the time we get to the the period of the Gospels, um, you know, a thousand years or so later, um, we see that that Jesus and his disciples were being accused of being unclean, of being um, of disregarding this Jewish tradition um, by eating with unclean hands, or that is, you know, ceremonially unwashed hands. And Mark picks up on this story uh, in chapter 7 of his gospel, verse 5, and he he gives this little statement to explain why the Pharisees were uh, saying these things. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the water, uh, washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches in some translations. Um, wet couch, I don't know. Um, maybe they didn't have um, squabs on their couches or something. Um, so in other words, um, what had started in Moses' time as, as, a, as a ritual of washing for priests, these priests whose job was to kind of cross between the, the sacred and the ordinary space, had now filtered down, uh, to use a watery metaphor, um, to, to, to everybody. Um, the Pharisees in particular promoted this practice that everybody should live as if they were a priest. That's the kind of standard of righteousness that, that Israel ought to live up to if God is going to choose us again, if God is going to set us free from exile. And you think about that, you know, imagining... Imagine having such a fraught relationship with the world that you had to wash yourself every time you, you were out at the, you know, go to the dairy to buy something. You had to wash yourself before you came home to, to rid yourself of the, the filth of, of the marketplace. Um, or having, a, having that view of the world or having that view of your relationship with God that you would see him as being so um, easily repelled by 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 the dirt, I guess, of the world, that if you don't wash yourself, he's going to draw away from you. He's going to just um, pull away. And if you don't wash yourself, you won't be able to be in his presence and you won't even be able to be in the presence of other people from your synagogue or your, your community. Because all this washing, you know, this good hygiene and, and washing hands before a meal, but it's not primarily about hygiene in this um, in this community at this time. It's, it's more about um, the right to stand before God um, and to remain part of the community, to remain sort of proximate to the people of God and within the people of God. So Jesus rubs up against this, and the Pharisees' accusation is that he's eating with unclean hands. His disciples are eating with unclean hands. And, and he responds by kind of pointing out their hypocrisy. 
he reminds them that they were really only interested in uh, maintaining these external signs of righteousness rather than living the truly righteous um, lives that were marked by things like justice, things like looking after your parents. So for instance, he talks about the way that the Pharisees disregard this command to look after their parents, but they obsess over washing. And in verse 14, we read, you know, this is what Mark says. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So we see Jesus is not, fooled um, by, you know, it's not fooled into thinking that, that washing could have any bearing on someone's righteousness. Water didn't possess magical qualities in Jesus's mind. He could sort of see that there was a deeper righteousness that was needed, and water couldn't do anything about that. And yet, we also see at the heart of Jesus's ministry and his instructions, his paradigmatic instruction at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that is like immersing them, ritually washing them in water, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, this is to be your business, is to be baptizing people, ritually immersing them in water, washing them. We also learn in John chapter 4, that Jesus instructed and directed his disciples to baptize people in the same manner that, that John was doing, John the Baptist, his cousin. So Jesus almost eclipses John the Baptist's baptismal ministry. Jesus the Baptist, they probably started referring to him as, I don't know. Um, and what's more, um, it says in the text that Jesus' Jesus's disciples were baptizing even more people than John were. So his, this kind of baptism work that Jesus was doing was massively popular, especially when you think about John's ministry at the time where we can gather, you know, that uh, where Mark says of John, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. So there's a lot of people um, going out to see John. Luke mentions that tax collectors went out to see John the Baptist, Pharisees, and also even Roman soldiers went out to see John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was a big deal, like a really big deal. Jesus's disciples inherit this and grow this baptism ministry. So it's a curious thing, isn't it? What's that about? Why is Jesus doing this baptism thing? All we can assume is that Jesus did place some value on it. It, it mattered to him. He placed value on this ritualistic immersion in water. It meant something to him, and he taught his disciples to do it. After his resurrection, he instructed them to continue doing it. And as we read in the book of Acts, baptism is almost always right there as soon as somebody uh, accepts Jesus, as soon, as soon as somebody hears the word and responds, they are baptized. It's sort of this quite quick loop, quite a tight loop in the book of Acts. You see it over and over again. So the notion of believing in Jesus and, uh, and not either being baptized or preparing for baptism 
is completely absent from the New Testament. Just it's a foreign a foreign concept. And and of course, um, all of the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. I don't think that's the Jordan, but it's a cool picture. <laughs> so if on the one hand, uh, Jesus doesn't think that ritualistic washing that the Pharisees were doing really changes the inner state of a person, and yet on the other, he personally participates in baptism. He allows himself to be baptism, or he, you know, he, he persuades John to baptism, uh, to baptize him. He um, affirms and eclipses John the Baptist's baptismal ministry and instructs all future generations of his followers to baptize and be baptized in his name. Then what does this tell us about Jesus' understanding of the role of baptism? Well, firstly, that it, that it was really important to him. And secondly, you know, we, we, we know that Jesus really adopted John the Baptist's approach and probably um, theology of baptism as well. We know that John's baptism happened way out in the Jordan, um, in the wilderness, far away. He you know, might have been able to do it in the temple, but you can only imagine the people in the temple would not have wanted John the Baptist doing his thing there. So he was way out on the edge of the Judean countryside. And it's also significant because the Jordan represents the boundary between Israel and the wilderness in the, in the story. So when the people first entered the land back in Moses' era and Joshua's era, they entered out of the desert, out of the wilderness, and crossed the Jordan in, to enter into the promised land. They departed the wilderness and passed through the Jordan River. In fact, Joshua, as you will remember, you know, parted the, parted the Jordan River, echoing the, the parting of the Red Sea. So we get this kind of building motif of Joshua and Moses showing God's deliverance, this connection to God's deliverance in the Exodus. So in a sense, John the Baptist's work was to plant that imagination in people's mind of a new exodus, of a new start, of a recalibration of the people of Israel. And even more significantly, John's call to baptism was set against the backdrop of this kind of cataclysm, this, this coming end of the age. So John was an apocalyptic prophet as well. He spoke of you know, this imminent arrival of the Lord and you need to get baptized right now because something's coming and you don't want um, to miss it. Um, you, don't, you, you need to repent now because otherwise it might be too late. So those are a couple of things which Jesus just seemed to adopt. Jesus also in his baptism ministry took on this mantle of the apocalyptic prophet saying, repent and believe the good news. And one more thing just to say about that. Um, well, it's not, it's not described in the Bible, but, but there are Jewish writings um, from, that, from that time period around the time of John the Baptist, which describe this kind of baptism, a special baptism that was designed to incorporate Gentile people into the nation of Israel. And it involved this ritualistic immersion in water. So the Jews at that time believed that these proselytes, these people who were coming into the nation of Israel, when they went into the water and emerged from the water, um, they had effectively dissolved all their past identities and became a new person. And in a piece of extreme hyperbole, the rabbis even said that a newly baptized person could hypothetically marry their former mother or father so much 
were they a completely new identity, which is kind of gross. But, uh, and they also added the caveat, you probably shouldn't, um, but hypothetically, you could. That's, what, that's the level of change that, that was happening in this um, proselyte baptism. And we see this in John 3, you know, the famous conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Jesus uses this kind of rebirth language to describe what must happen in order to enter the kingdom of God. And in conversation he, you know, with Nicodemus, he says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And again, he said, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. So baptism became a, a central rite of passage into this new identity. It is, should I say. Jesus initiated, but he didn't invent Christian baptism, if you like. And what he did do is he created room for people to be baptized into his name or more specifically, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be baptized into the name of God, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible speaks about baptism as this effective rite, this thing which actually changes something. Baptism brands us with the triune name. It, it, it's like God puts his name on us when we're baptized. Being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit means that we now belong. We're incorporated into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're incorporated into God. That's quite significant. Then if we take the Bible at its word, um, we can also say that baptism washes us from sin. As it says in Acts 2.38, when Peter had finished this remarkable sermon on the day of Pentecost, and the people say, what, what shall we do? He says, repent, choose life, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized so that, so repentance and baptism, you know, actually washes us from sin and confers the gift of the Holy Spirit, according to, to Peter. According to Paul, Baptism grafts us into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says, All of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In this way, baptism doesn't just affect our washing from sin, but it also affects our justification, our being made right with God. Scripture also speaks to the way that baptism joins us with the spirit-filled community, the body of Christ, the church. Again, Paul says, um, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized in one spirit, as so, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, I don't know how you're feeling as I read this out, you might be thinking, does baptism do all of that? Um, really? Saves and washes and washes away sins and justifies baptism? Really? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of have thought that way and 
But I think perhaps it speaks, you know, that, that kind of instinct speaks to our very diminished view of, of the church and our very, I guess, elevated view of the autonomous self. They go hand in hand. But isn't it, un- it's, you know, it's, it isn't uncommon, I think, to hear of people trying to pursue Christianity independently of belonging to and participating in the life of a church, as if that's a thing you can do, as if that's a thing that's on offer to be pursuing Christianity and not be pursuing the church and participating in the life of church. Communion with God, our relationship with God, doesn't happen primarily in the secret, hidden, internal, individual chamber of our hearts. That's really important, but that's not where communion with God primarily is taking place. Um, It happens in this flesh and blood world of the church in this messy, mucky, difficult thing called church. That's where we encounter each other and encounter God in each other. Baptism births us into this weird family, and here we are. Um, and it makes, you know, it makes sense in that, in that regard to, to say that baptism saves you, as, as Peter puts it in his letter. This is what he writes. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And baptism which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Wow, isn't that amazing? Um, What Peter's saying there, that this, the flood is prefiguring baptism and that it's this baptism that saves us. Now, if I'm honest, I'm really not predisposed to have such a high view of, of baptism, like I said. In the past, uh, I've probably seen it as this perfunctory duty, this thing that all Christians you know, ought to do, kind of like you know, putting your shoes on in the morning. It's just a, it's a necessary thing that a Christian ought to do at some point if they have time to get around to getting baptized. But not really, uh, I guess I've never seen it as such a significant thing that I would say baptism changes my identity, that I would say that baptism saves me by grafting me into the life of God and branding me as belonging to God. I would have said um, it's an important and a good thing to do, but not something worth giving, you know, a whole lot of thought to. And the truth is, when I look back on, on my baptism, 20 years ago this year, I kind of shake my head and think about how little I really thought about what what was going on and what baptism means. Um, there are probably people here with really awesome baptism stories um, of coming out of the water and hearing choirs of angels and uh, the Holy Spirit falling on them and prophesying. But for me, uh, it, it certainly wasn't that. And I heard that there were some people at Urban who were getting baptized. There was a small group of who I didn't belong to, and I tagged along with them and 
didn't know anybody and um, heard they were going out to the beach for baptism, so I thought, oh, I guess I should go. I haven't been baptised, so um, why not? And it just happened to be the middle of winter, July, on the on Muriwai Beach, uh, biting southwesterly, and the pounding waves, you know, um, that pounding that salty sea to make this weird foam. You've, you've probably all seen it, this kind of fluffy foam out there. So I don't know if I was properly baptised or not. I was sort of dunked into the foam and <laughs> dunked into the foam and then down into the black kind of dirty, um, sandy water. Too cold to remember anything um, except being like, where's my towel? <laughs> what just happened to me? And that, that was my baptism. At, at times I, I kind of wish I could... Uh, have a different story, I wish I could sort of do it again, uh, um, but the more I think about it, the more I think, well, that was the moment, that was a moment, and it was the moment, it's the moment I was born from water, to use Jesus' language, and, and you know, like many, or perhaps all births, it was messy, and it was human, and it was sacred, July the 10th, 2004, so um, coming up 20 years ago, for Jonathan Rankin, who was born in sin, died at Mirawai Beach, and was born again, a new creation. And here's what I've come to believe, you know, the more I've thought about this, the more I've pondered it and considered it. Baptism's more than just a symbol of, of identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. It's more than just a picture. It's more than a mere picture. It's more than a mere symbol. The Bible never portrays baptism in that way, as a mere symbol, as a mere picture. What the Bible presents, um, it presents baptism as what it is. And it sounds kind of a clumsy way of saying it, but what baptism pictures in the Bible actually happens at baptism. That's what's going on. Mysterious, but that's what's happening when you're baptized. I guess you could say um, I've become a little bit more sacramental as I've, as I've aged um, over the last 20 years. And not to the extent that I think it's magic, not to the extent that I, um, you know, I would make the mistake of almost going to what the Pharisees were doing and, and focusing on the, the washing and not the intent. But I, I've, I've begun to see that, you know, I think the Holy Spirit is at work in baptism, that there is something which is happening in baptism, something which is being changed in us in baptism and at the Lord's table, which we take every week. It's not just a symbol of a of something, but there's there's a that the Holy Spirit is with us as we as we participate in communion. The Holy Spirit is with us as we are baptized. And the Holy Spirit's with us as we read scripture and the Holy Spirit is with us as we pray for each other and lay hands on one another. That's the kind of sacramental um, Christianity I'm talking about, not not high sacraments where nobody else can touch it, but the idea that the Holy Spirit is present in all of life, in every part of life, transforming us, but that baptism is a significant site of transformation. So here's the invitation for 2024. Choose life and be baptized. If you haven't been baptized already, Make an appointment to be baptized. And if you're like me and you already have been baptized, um, but wish it was different, wish it was more glorious, wish it was more reverent, wish it was more sacred, I, I think the, 
the invitation is to make peace with how it was, is to remember your baptism. Remember that something happened there that was sacred. Something happened to the person who you were, which changed in baptism. And if you have been baptized, then the invitation is to consider some of these things I've been talking about. You have been washed. You've been washed. And that's effective. You don't need to be washed again. You don't need to go and be rebaptized. You've died. And you've been given a new name. Your name is now in God's name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's your name. And you're clothed in Christ. That's your identity. That's how God sees you, in Christ. And the old labels, which like to kind of come and try to haunt us, they no longer apply. They are dead and washed away in that sea, in that saving flood. So as we look ahead to this year, that's my simple encouragement, is to remember your baptism. Remember and consider it. Consider that that mark has been made, that that line has been crossed. And if you haven't been baptized, don't panic that you're going to get hit by a bus. I'm not saying that... Um, I'm not saying that, that God is that arbitrary, but I am saying make time to be baptized. It's important. You will be changed in the process. And we can live in the knowledge of that truth. And if we could live that way, goodness, wouldn't it change the way we looked at the world? Wouldn't it change the way we saw ourselves? 